you know like in early products a lot of times like qualitative data wins a lot more over like quantitative data so having very clear success criteria you know getting nps score user satisfaction all these things and finding that strong product market fit so that you can make a decision a go no go decision on a product with well defined criteria that was set before the launch of that particular product is very important my name is isabel and this is your product review toolbox Arjuna Kanan is currently the head of product, payout and money movements at Stripe. She is a product leader with over a decade of experience in leading innovation and scale across financial services and payments, AI, e-commerce and at tech. She is passionate about building the future with a diverse team to make a positive impact. Today we're going to be chatting about leading the charge in a competitive product space and we're going to talk about best practices and the biggest challenges she's faced. Thank you Arjuna for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, thank you Isabel for having me here. It's really exciting to see what you're building with the product toolbox and amazing to be here in this podcast. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Well, to give you credit first, let's first start by talking about your career trajectory. You are a really great example about how careers are not always linear. You study computer science to get your MBA. Um, so I noticed that when you were getting your MBA, though, you made a shift from being a staff software engineer at Google to a product manager while also dabbling in impact investing. How the heck did you manage all of that? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that I always like doing is focus on really what I love. I love technology. Like I remember that very clearly even from my high school days, like the first program that I wrote, the first thing that I built just gave me immense joy. So I knew that I wanted to be in the business of building technology, but also to do something. the purpose of it was very important for me which means like you know it needs to solve like real user problems so i was doing you know i joined google it was really fantastic phenomenal i was building like amazing like search infrastructure and working on really really like cutting edge things but i also realized at that time that framing of the problem was very critically important it is not just how you solve things but it is like what is the thing that you're solving why is that important was like equally important so that's when i was like okay hey i'm actually you know like interested in like what's the broader business case i was like getting my mba at berkeley and i figured out that okay like what is the kind of career that i want to have it wasn't like direct at that time it wasn't like obvious that product management was a thing to do so i was like playing around like the school you know was studying me help me like you know just explore opportunities like do a few consulting projects uh double in impact investing but i then realized that you know at the end of the day this thing called product management seemed really nice like it helped me both you know bring my business skills but also like you know work in core technology to go back to what i was saying before which is solving problems solving real user problems so that's how it kind of like came all the you know yes it looks very non linear but you know there was like intention behind every one of those this those things that you mentioned given that you said that product management was such a new space at that time what do you think was that biggest challenge in making that transition especially if it at the time was solving real user problems but 
Did you know what that meant? Was that the biggest challenge in that transition or was there something bigger? Yeah. So there was, it was early and there was not like a very structured product management as there is today, which is really nice to see because I think like the more that product management gets better defined, we get more well-talented, well-rounded people come and participate. So it was a little bit of a rodeo show at that time. And I'm talking about this is like, you know, nine, 10 years back. But at the same time, there were enough product managers that I could reach out to, talk to, and like learn from their experiences. I think similar to the spirit of like what you're trying to do with product toolbox, it really was that thing of like putting yourself out there talking to people, knowing what the what some of the expectations of the job was, knowing what well and some of the expectations of the job really helped. But I would say that the biggest thing of like tran the transition that I experienced was I had to remind myself almost every day that I need to get comfortable with ambiguity. That I think is the beauty and the fun of product management, but it is also a very hard transition when you're going from a role in engineering, which is like very structured, which is like, okay, if I know the requirements, these are like ways in which I'm going to solve to like, okay, like, you know, I need to really like users may not be saying what exactly they want. Like at every stage, there is a ton of like ambiguity and just getting comfortable with it is a big mind shift change. And that was like, I would say like one of the big transitions that I had to make when I moved to product management. How do you think that has been different compared to PMs now where you have thought leaders in product like Marty Kagan writing Inspired and writing all these kind of rules of how to become a good product manager versus at that time when you were really trying to figure out what are best practices, how do you navigate ambiguity through figuring out more ambiguity? How do you, how do you see that shift that has happened now in the industry as a product manager? I think it's almost like, you know, how how you can like accumulate learnings. I think now that you have many more experiences, you have like thought leaders writing about this, like, you know, doing podcasts, whatnot and everything. I wouldn't say that it removes all the complexity of product management, but it does help short circuit. It does help like people be a lot more efficient and, you know, also accomplish like bigger and better things right now. That's and now you're at Stripe. So you made a shift in general from e-commerce and AR, and now you made a shift to fintech. How is the fintech landscape shifting and what, what gets you excited about it? Yeah. So I had a long career at Google. I was there at Google for 14 years. Towards the end, I was a director of product in our emerging technology spaces like augmented reality, video commerce. And I was having a really, really good time like doing some of these zero to one initiatives. But also like I played around in e-commerce for the longest time. Even with AR, we had found like a really, really strong product market fit with beauty and makeup try-on with automotives, retail, and a bunch of like, you know, places where visual shopping like really, really made a difference. But when I was like, just seeing like, okay, what do I want as a next phase of my career? And I was like, you know, figuring out like what would be interesting. I was seeing growth in fintech and it was really looking at like, you know, a business from a very different lens, right? Like shopping helps you get to the place where you check out things and where you buy things. And then I think like financial services and payments especially starts a checkout and then it deals with a whole lot more on like how businesses manage money. So to me, like 
fundamentally, like what got me excited about fintech was that this is a fabric of every business, right? There is, you cannot run a business without like actually knowing how to manage your money, how to get your customers to pay you, like how to acquire, how to like pay out your suppliers and vendors. So at the end of the day, it was like, you know, so core to any business. And I really got drawn to Stripe just because of the sense of purpose that it had, which was to grow the GDP of the internet. And then as I started talking to people, I think that was the last that brought me to Stripe, which is that everybody whom I spoke to made me say that, okay, I want to work here, right? And that's always like a big, a big win thinking about a career change. So fintech though is, as you mentioned, raising the quality of life even on the internet and democratizing just a lot of what we thought finance looked like for many, many users. But also now we're starting to see that fintech is getting to be a very competitive space from scale-up leaders revolutionizing the space to banks trying to keep up in general. And you also see fast-moving startups that are trying to compete for all-in-one platforms as well. So what has, I guess, the biggest challenge you've faced so far in building a competitive product in a competitive space as a whole to start yeah yeah and fintech is i'll go back and say it's a very exciting time right like even though finance has been the backbone of a business for like more than a couple of centuries only in the last decade we're seeing a revolution of technology in financial services right there is innovation happening in many different areas like how users buy and pay we're seeing like new models like tap to pay or like buy now pay later we are seeing companies like acquire customers globally right like it becomes even more easy to like sell globally across like multiple markets at the same time those are managing their day-to-day operations now with like leaner capital structures because they get like real-time access to like knowing about their liquidity positions. Banking is now available as a service online. And it's crazy to even imagine that even if you're like an internet startup, you had to go to a physical bank before to like, you know, get get your business registered and like actually like manage your business, right? So I just feel that we're still very much at the tip of the iceberg. And yes, it's become like very hot. And also like it's a moment where, you know, banks like traditional banks are also thinking, hey, how can they think about this? How can they think about like fintech with like a technology first mindset? But I almost kind of like see this as like how, you know, we had the PC revolution, right? We had that with Apple. And like, I remember like, you know, it's much more engaging when more players in the ecosystem are like hotly contending and thinking about this, because at the end of the day, this will be right for the user. There'll be a lot more options and choice, but also like they will see a lot of like innovation, like spin from this across like multiple angles of their business. And given that there is so much of, you know, runway for folks to like innovate and like do many things. But I think there are like, we're seeing like many players develop their niches and like, you know, actually like thrive really well. Stripe is definitely one of them, but I'm seeing like very exciting things from many other, like, you know, many other companies like Plaid, Wise, Brex, and several other like startups are all doing like pretty exciting stuff in the space. And you mentioned though, that now you have a plethora of things to choose from. They have as you mentioned, Tile as well, or just even Stripe and Square and and all these different players in different types of sub-industries within 
fintech as a whole. How do you look at differentiation then? What has been the biggest challenge that you found differentiating, for example, Stripe in the entire market? Yeah, I think at the core of it, like we need to look at like, you know, hey, what is it that we do for our users, right? Like that's one of the principles of product management, which is that users first is always, always like the lens to use. And for Stripe, that's traditionally been around like, hey, we are a very, very easy to integrate, you know, financial service provider. At the end of the day, if you go to Twitter and see, like, you know, a lot of developers talk about like how easy it is to work with Stripe, how quick it's been to like, you know, just get like payments integrated and going with things. So really like focusing on our strengths and seeing like, okay, what can we do from that point? Like where we can extend that same value prop that we give, but also like think about it from terms of like, okay, where are user needs? Is it not, it's not just in payments, it's in other places too. So how do we extend it to all the other things that they do once they start working with Stripe has been the thing that we've been using and has really worked very well in terms of like differentiation for Stripe. It sounds like you're not only then investing in the right products, but also you're investing in the right partnerships as well, from what I'm hearing in that in that sense. How do you fit, for example, the workflow of a specific user that engages with Stripe into their day-to-day or their habit? How do you decide what's the right bet, though, when it comes to which workflow do you want to prioritize? Which users do you want to prioritize? especially in a vast, broad space that you can really tackle anybody that uses the internet. Yeah, 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 that's true. I think this also goes back to some of the fundamentals, right? Like we want to grow the GDP of the internet. We talk a lot about, you know, what we call as a GPTN, which is our global payments and treasury network. And that's the foundation. That's basically the abstraction layer that we're giving for all these financial services to our users to say, you don't have to worry about the bank. You don't have to worry about the rails. You don't have to worry about like, you know, the payment processors, but, you know, we simplify all of that so that like, it's easier for you to say the state, the jobs to be done and get those done, like rather than like, you know, worry about the nitty gritty details, just like, you know, the TCP IP did it for this, for the internet, right? Like the protocols like that. So going back to your question, I think, you know, while it's a very broad mission, it's always important to know where your core user segments are and then like where you're like, you know, incrementally building and like acquiring more and more user segments. Where Stripe started was definitely with our startups, right? Like, you know, that's where the developers were like, okay, I love the ease of use of the product. And like, you know, they, it was almost like magical to see that, you know, without even like, it was just like one of those organic things that grew quite a bit where, you know, you kind of like really tackle that community. They talk with each other and then like a lot of startups ended up using, you know, Stripe. So we continue to like focus on them, like serve them really well. But also more recently, we have started, you know, broaching into like much larger users, into more traditional enterprises. And recently, you know, Stripe has made like big news about, you know, getting the Ford deal and like many other of the traditional, like what we talk about the traditional enterprises, but also like recently we landed our Amazon deal, right? Like the world's largest like retailer, kind of like using Stripe as their like core payments processor. So, you know, it is like how you kind of like progressively grow, but 
always start with a focus and then you kind of like expand from there when you have a broad mission like this. Yeah, that's fair. And that's, I guess, also in collaboration with the sales teams, the marketing teams. What do you think is the nuances in that relationship and dynamic that you found in building product strategy and working with your counterparts in sales and marketing as well? Yeah. Our go-to-market teams are a very big backbone to all of this, right? If you do not have the tight interlock between like product and go-to-market, you could very easily get into a scenario where you're selling things that are not actually getting built or building things that are not like sellable. So it really is like how, how the two teams like come together, how we can like, you know, hear each other, how we can like, you know, how PMs need to be attending a lot of like user calls and like going and actually like talking to users, understanding their pain points and, you know, co-building with the go-to-market teams when it comes to like, you know, what is a product that we're going to sell to our users. And it's very understated sometimes with with us focusing on user problems, but also hearing from those on the front lines of what exactly matters. And with that being said, though, what are the principles do you think that you abide by when you are thinking about investing in the right bets, whatever right looks like, I say in quotation marks? Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is where I think it's been a very interesting journey for me from like Google to Stripe. There are many differences in like the kind of businesses that I manage, right? Like Google was definitely more consumer centric. Stripe is a lot more of like a B2B company. And also like, I think that portfolio and the mindshare of like what to invest, like what is right is very different across these companies. But the common threads are, I think as a product manager, the first thing is like, we need to be obsessed about our users, right? It You need to have that user first mindset. If you're not building something for users, you know, everything else falls apart. No matter, you know, how great the technology is, no matter how shiny the marketing is, like the core value prop is the most important thing. So how are you like wearing that user first mindset? How do you define a problem in terms of like user pain points, what they need? How do you kind of like, you know, think very carefully through every stage of and every feature that goes into the product is a very important aspect. The second thing that I say, especially when you're saying like right bets, is almost like it indicates that, you know, you're kind of like talking about a lot of these zero to one efforts. And a critical aspect that I say is that, you know, solve before scale, which is that, you know, really focus on like solving and proving that product market fit before you start to saying, okay, yeah, hey, here is how it's going to bring like, you know, millions of dollars or billions of dollars in revenue, become a billion user product and all these other things. Like you need to nail that core value proposition. If that doesn't exist, like there will always be like quick, easy ways to like grow your, you know, like growth hack initially, but you cannot like fake the, the ceiling of where that will go. Like, so solve before scale is another important thing. There is the third thing that I will say is that there is no better proof than like, you know, getting to use, getting the product into users' hands. So always like launch and iterate. This is something that, you know, we at Google did very seriously, but it is very important to get something out quickly into the hands of users learn from their feedback and then like really start iterating and like polishing the product after that. If I remember like Gmail was in beta for a very, very long time, right? Like before it actually got released. So I think we can take some of that principles 
uh, to say that, you know, just get it into the hands of users. And then there is no substitute for like real user feedback and usage data that, that will come through that will help you like build great products. And, you know, constantly across, I think the theme that I'm saying is like, you know, it's important to have your North Star vision. So keep your eyes on the stars, but your ears need to be on the ground always. So how do you keep very close to your users, work with your go-to marketing teams, work with, you know, do your user interviews and hear their pain points and stay very close to the user as you're building the product. And that's ultimately the recipe for success. Very well summarized. I feel like you just summarized what PMs should be focusing on in general. I do notice based on previous experience though, that sometimes companies tend to put the cart before the horse. And you mentioned there's launching and then iterating, but when do you know that iteration is not enough and maybe it's worth sunsetting, for example, a specific initiative? Yeah. So this actually happened quite a lot to me, especially when I was working in like augmented reality, because the space was so greenfield and you had to be comfortable, like trying a few things failing and then like picking up and picking up the learnings from there to get to like, okay, what the shape of the product needs to be. One of the very important things I would say is that, you know, you need to understand what is success, like before you engage and before you launch something. If that is an ill-defined criteria or it's like a moving target, I think you can be in the launch and iterate mode for a very, very long time. But if that is a very well-defined set of things, and it doesn't always have to be like a hardcore metrics you know, like in early products, a lot of times like qualitative data wins a lot more over like quantitative data. So having very clear success criteria, you know, getting NPS score, user satisfaction, all these things and finding that strong product market fit so that you can make a decision, a go, no go decision on a product with well-defined criteria that was set before the launch of that particular product is very important. Yeah, very, very true. And then I think that's where Google was the one that really introduced the concept of OKRs, right? And, and and what that really looks like. And I think a lot more companies are adopting it. But I think from a leadership perspective or a product leadership perspective, that is why product leaders are so important to make sure that the rest of the organization is aligned towards what does success look like for the company and for the strategy. That is correct. And also, I think it's important to recognize people through all of this right which is to say that i think you know lead as leadership i believe one of the things that i need to do is like be open and honest right where something is an experiment where something is an early mode and like success is not guaranteed yes we define success criteria but we need to be like open and transparent when that's not happening so bringing people along like you know setting like people are spending their lives, their careers, and, you know, like hours that they could be spending in many other things, building stuff. So, you know, making making that, you know, part of that experimentation as also a part of the success of like what we can get is, is a very important thing to bring people along, to be in this journey of like figuring out what's the right thing to do and celebrating it is also equally important. What's your favorite way of celebrating with the team it actually depends on the scenario but i think like at least having forums where people can get together and talk openly about these things like where product launches and product learnings are both called out and like you know all hands and all these other areas where you know we kind of like talk about stuff and where individuals 
are credited for you know for the learning itself and not necessarily like dinged if a product doesn't like end up landing is a very important aspect mm. in their personal career for sure and that's why also there's now an an emergence of growth product management as well which is more of the experimentation mindset and testing hypotheses out to see if it fails or succeeds last question maybe because you've been so gracious with your time here any frameworks that you love slash leverage often that you use when it comes to building a competitive product? I would say it's a lot more of like, it really depends on like what you're trying to do. But there are typical like, you know, hey, how do you build a business case? Like, you know, the famous Amazon six pager of like trying to do a press release for your product before, you know, before you actually start working on it. Those are very useful frameworks to think about. But at the very onset, I will say, like, I think focus on what's the core value to the user how you're like starting with a focus mindset, defining clear success criteria, and then building and launching and iterating from that point. And I would say the last part is like, know the risk to your business uh, and make sure that you actually are making the decisions that will help you like get comfortable with the risks that are there around or like help you like mitigate and minimize those risks at every stage. Well, Arshna, first thing, thank you for your time. Again, this has been very insightful and also very intriguing to learn more about the fintech space and Stripe's mission as well. If there is anyone in the podcast that wants to reach out to you or learn more or follow along with your thought leadership, where should they find you? Definitely on LinkedIn as the first place. So Archana Kanan on LinkedIn should help you get to me and would love to like stay in touch with folks, whether you're new to the space or you want to, you know, you're a much more seasoned leader. I think there's a lot that everyone can learn from shared experiences. Totally. I I agree. And you've been nothing but gracious with your knowledge and contact sharing. So I really appreciate making the time, Arjuna, and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, this was great, Isabel. Nice chatting with you.